0: Welcome to Conscious Pathways, the podcast that explores the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I'm your host, Brittany Carey, and together let's uncover the conscious pathways that can lead us to a more fair and equitable society. Today, we're going to be tackling the pretty big topic of the school-to-prison pipeline. It's something I've been really passionate about and curious about for a number of years, and I spent most of my grad school and undergraduate program, really studying and analyzing the historical context of why this is happening, and how did we get here, and what are these pathways to move forward. Um, And I just want to say, first off, that I live in an apartment, and every time I have tried to record this, either my upstairs neighbor is upstairs neighboring, or there's just something loud happening outside. And I just had to decide whether I was going to record this podcast and get it out on time or not do that. So (laughs) I really apologize if you hear any uh, strange background noises. I'm going to do my best to cut that out or uh, kind of do the power of editing, maneuver my way around it. Um, But yeah, the world's happening around me and we're just going to have to be okay with that. (laughs) Anyways. So today we're going to be talking about the school to prison pipeline and in my last episode we talked about social justice and we talked about advocacy and i really broke down what these concepts mean um just kind of like a base level it's a lot a deeper there's a lot of nuance into social justice and advocacy but really just like a baseline an introduction into what it is i know i talk about social justice that's the purpose of this whole podcast so I just wanted to be able to explain that a little bit so we have a kind of general understanding of what are we doing and the intentionality between the guests about why I pick the certain guests that come onto the show um, and the topics that we talk about. They're all related to this lens of social justice and advocacy. And that last episode, I mentioned that social justice, you know, to me is the theory and then the advocacy component is the practice of it. So it's how do you go out there and how do you do it? And social justice gives us the context, the historical context into what's happening, the patterns. Um, It gives us vocabulary, it gives us nuance. So, social justice is very important. I know for me, I studied this very specifically. However, I also am a big firm believer that you don't have to go to school in order to learn about these things. There are a bunch of different ways that you can go about learning about things that you're passionate about that don't involve you going to school, taking out. Exorbitant amounts of loans and doing all of that, uh, so I always think it's really important to note that. Um, but it is important that as advocates we have an understanding of how did these social issues get here. Who, what, who are the players that are involved in these social systems, and really being intentional about how we then use our voice for advocacy and how we elevate voices for advocacy. And so, going back to the original topic, the school of the prison pipeline is this process of push out from students from their school or community environment into the criminal justice system so it's really in the name it is the pipeline of students going from school to prison right and as we talked about last time with the systems of oppression there are these kind of patterns of mistreat patterns and systems of mistreatment that happen that lead to social inequity and with the school to prison pipeline, the systems, the main two systems that are at play here are our educational system and our justice system. Those are the two main systems that we're looking at. There's a couple of other systems that kind of have their hand in it as well, but for the purposes of this conversation, we're gonna stick to those two uh, main systems that are at play. And so it's important that as we as I go through talking about the school of prison pipeline, I'm going to talk about the historical context. So, again, how did we get here? That's social justice. How did we get here? Who's at play? Who benefits from this? We're also going to talk a little bit about policy implementation. We're also going to talk a little bit about policy implications. So what policies are also involved in helping this process to go along? Uh, we'll also talk about some school and community frameworks or processes that can go... We're also going to talk about some uh, programs schools and communities can get involved with and how we can sort of start making change in this issue and turning our you know outcomes more positive for students. Uh, so that's kind of the framework that we'll be talking about today. Um, I'll be kind of switching between talking about the education system and our legal justice system, criminal justice system as well, because they're really interconnected in this process. They really worked hand in hand to get these uh, issues together. So I'll be kind of switching back and forth between them, but I'll try to make sure that it's cohesive and that it makes sense for everyone. (laughs) Um, So this in the. So juvenile justice goes back into the early, like 1900s. It actually, the United States was a big kind of, we were really progressive with our juvenile justice system, actually. And so a lot of other countries were starting to model their juvenile justice strategies after the United States, just because our practices were advanced, they were progressive, and they were really looking at the individual. So previously, um, our juvenile justice system looked at students' Uh, ju- well, it looked at juvenile delinquency specifically as more individual. It looked at youth, youth or juveniles as, you know, not inherently insidious. They're not inherently e- uh, evil. Is that sometimes their behavior is a response or a reaction to their environment that they are in, um, and it looked at you know crimes in comparison to other juveniles and and all of these. So first we'll discuss a little bit about the United States. So first we'll talk a little bit about the Federal Juvenile Delinquency Act. And I'll preface, this is all, all of my information as of right now is we're gonna be talking about the American uh, system and we're gonna be talking about the United States um, criminal justice system. And we we'll be talking about the United States education system. I would love to have a broader context on conversation about, you know, globally what's happening out there and we'll get there. But for this conversation right now, we're going to start with the American um, education and justice systems. So in the United States in the 1930s, the federal juvenile delinquency act was enacted and it did a number of things. So one, it identified what a juvenile is and that is anyone who has yet to reach that 18th birthday. So, you know, 17 and under is essentially a juvenile and so that is what this act is really referring to and it also kind of paves the, it paved the way for juvenile courts so there were courts now that could hear cases involving juveniles behavior before it was just we had one court and it did all the things um so now we had a separate court that did look at juveniles and it recognized that sometimes juveniles behavior is a result of their environment. And sometimes it means that juveniles are not inherently insidious, that they're not inherently evil, that sometimes they're just doing things because it's part of their environment. We know now as well as in addition to environmental factors um, impacting juvenile behavior, we also know that we can go into brain chemistry and brain development. So we know that adolescence, which is about the time of the onset of puberty, and that kind of varies, generally speaking, from person to person. Um, But we could say onset of puberty is when adolescence starts. And adolescence ends at when your brain has kind of reached full maturity. And for most people, that's about 25 years old, is when your brain is pretty much done developing. Our frontal lobes are the ones that kind of develop the slowest, but they also have a lot of, um, it has a lot of impact on our behavior. So that's our decision-making part of your brain is within that frontal lobe. Um, that delayed gratification is a part of our frontal lobe. So there's a lot of really important processes that are happening that doesn't fully develop until a little bit later. So when I mentioned the term adolescence, that is the the age range I'm working with. So that's puberty to about 25 years old. When I talk about juveniles, that's pretty much anyone who has yet to reach 18, right? So if you are just at your birthdays tomorrow and your best turned 18, you're still a juvenile. The day you turn 18 you become an adult within the eyes of the American justice system. So breaking down those topics right there. So going back to the federal juvenile delinquency act, it broke it down into what a juvenile is. It established a juvenile court and it also establishes the cases that the juvenile court is eligible to hear. So it can't hear all cases based on all crimes. There's certain crimes that are, um, So under the federal juvenile delinquency act, there are certain crimes that, um, juvenile courts do not have jurisdiction to hear. Um, So those things, include, um, those things include controlled substances. There's a whole other act that kind of controls that. They can't cover things involving controlled substances or sexually violent crimes, or in some cases, physically violent crimes are also excluded from being heard in juvenile courts. Um, so it does specify a little bit more. And that act was really important Because again, it established these courts that they could hear juvenile courts, right? They could hear juvenile cases. And it's really important because There are certain cases that are exempt from juvenile court's jurisdiction. So there's certain things that they can't um, make a decision on just because it's out of their scope. So things like controlled substances, like crimes involving controlled substances, crimes involving sexually or physically violent crimes are things that are kind of omitted from the jurisdiction of juvenile court judges but mostly the juvenile court system was enacted to rehabilitate students or... The juvenile courts were established to rehabilitate juveniles um, to correct that maladaptive behavior. It was really supposed to be separate from the adult criminal court system, which that's the whole other conversation about that, but it was really just supposed to be separate and it's supposed to provide opportunities for rehabilitation and to really actually work with youth and again, understanding that juveniles sometimes are out, sometimes their decisions are outside of their control, or sometimes it's in a, it's in a part of their environment. There's a whole of, a whole list of factors that could be influencing their behavior. And so juvenile courts typically tend to look into that. Uh, decisions made at the juvenile court level tend to be a little less harsh than decisions made in adult criminal court, right? And so that we can look at with the initial the inception or the beginning of the juvenile court system around the 1980s and 1990s there was this shift in thinking of justice so it went from you know this idea of rehabilitation if it was actually rehabilitating that's a whole other conversation but that was the that was the idea that it would help to rehabilitate people um help people and help them then reintegrate back into society 1980s and 1990s, there was this shift to being more tough on crime. And this shift was really detrimental for a number of different things. Um, And particularly, we saw that out of this tough on crime era, sentencing became way harsher, um, especially for black and brown communities. The tough on crime era was really an attack on black and brown communities. Um, You saw, you know, the kind of introduction of these like hyper policing of um urban areas where black and brown people lived Um, you start seeing this hyper surveillance within schools so you start seeing this presence of kind of police and authority figures within schools where that wasn't there before Uh, today we would call them kind of like school resource officers Uh, we saw the kind of inception of that start growing this tough on crime era as I mentioned, it impacted a lot of different areas of society. And part of the areas that it impacted was education. So out of this tough on crime era was born these um, zero tolerance policies that are No Child Left Behind was an act that came out in about 2002 during the George Bush era. And it really grew out of this concern that American students were not being competitively were not internationally competitive with their peers. And so it put a lot of stress on standardized testing. So really boosting up the standards that students were being held to, boosting up the standards that teachers were being held to, and boosting that accountability feature, right? So it really tied test scores to their funding, to school's funding. So if test scores got too low, um, if they didn't meet these standards, if they didn't hit these marks, then they could lose their federal funding, which obviously they don't want. Um, in theory, <laughs> that's a great idea to increase the standards that we're holding each other to. In practice though, it turned it turned things kind of upside down, right? So it wasn't this fully holistic approach and also looking at standardized testing, it isn't always the greatest benchmark to know how well students are doing. It, looks at what students know through like rote learning but I don't think it's really it's not looking at the overall quality of education that students are getting and it's not looking at the overall quality of education that teachers are getting so there's a big step there that was lost the idea the concept of it was all right but the actual putting that into place really put our education system in this tailspin this kind of downward spiral and the zero tolerance policies, right? So if the goal is the intention that we've set with No Child Left Behind is that you're going to have high test scores, and that's going to be indicative of how well our students are doing is they're going to have high reading scores, they're going to have tests really high on vocabulary, they're going to test really high on comprehension, right? And so that's the goal. My only goal is to get you to do well on tests. That means that any behavior that derails that it's a zero tolerance, right? We're not we're not going to tolerate it. You're going to get kicked out of the school. If you, if you don't sit down and learn and do what I'm telling you to do, you don't belong within this school, right? And so that is sort of what started to happen with these zero tolerance policies. And it paved the way for these exclusionary discipline practices that we see today. And so exclusionary discipline practices, they come in a number of different ways. So you have suspensions and you have expulsions. Suspensions are when a student is asked to leave the school or the school community or the classroom for a period of time. That could be for an hour, that could be for the day, that could be for a couple of days, Um, but the student is still allowed to come back into the school community and environment. An expulsion is when a student is removed from the school classroom, the school environment, the school community, and is not welcome to come back, right? And so it's kind of a total you know expulsion from the school community in expulsions we have kind of this hard and soft version so hard expulsion is exactly what an expulsion is you're getting you know you are getting kicked out of the school and you're not welcome to come back a soft expulsion is something like when especially this more kind of relates to early childhood so When a parent is repeatedly being called to come pick up their child, whether that's due to challenging behaviors that they're experiencing or anything like that, and the parent is constantly being called to come back in to pick up the child, it makes it so that care is completely unattainable if that parent has to leave work to come pick up their child once a week, twice a week, three times a week, repetitively having to come pick up that child, it makes it so that they can't feasibly keep going to that school right? So you've given them no other option, but for them to find alternative levels of care. So that's more of like a, a soft expulsion, right? It's, it's very kind of slow, very, we're just going to keep calling the parent, we're just going to keep having you pick, get picked up. Um, and so it leads to that parent not being able to go there anymore. Under suspensions, you have kind of in-school suspensions. So that could be things like you're going to go to the principal's office, um, you're going to go to a separate classroom or a separate room to go kind of reflect on your actions. Um, or it can be an out-of-school suspension where, you know, again, you are, you're kind of being excluded from the classroom and school community environment for a set period of time. And then after that time, you are invited to come back. Um, so those are those kind of two different versions of exclusionary discipline. Exclusionary discipline is a bit problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that you're taking the student out of the school classroom and community environment. And we know, especially in early childhood, that peer-to-peer learning is one of the best ways that students learn, right? Having that community, having that bond with your teachers. So you're kind of giving that social emotional component is being disrupted every time that child is being removed from the environment. And it also doesn't really do anything to prevent um you know, challenging behavior or maladaptive behavior it doesn't really prevent behavior from escalating, right? It just eliminate. It just removes the child from the classroom, but the problem still is there, right? And it also communicates to the other students around them that, oh, this is what happens if you have a bad day, or this is what happens to certain students. And when I get to those certain students, right? So there's, we have data for. Uh, preschools and K through 12 schools um, nationally, we do have data on exclusionary discipline practices. We know for early childhood education, um, I'll take a step back real fast. So there's two words that I'm gonna use a lot in this section, and that's disproportionality and disparity. And so I kinda wanna break those down real fast. So when I'm talking about a disproportionality, that means an over or under representation of a certain group. So that could be a racial or ethnic group in a certain kind of data set or within the population, right? So it's an over or under representation of a certain group within the population. When I talk about disparity, that is the unequal outcomes of a group. Again, that could be racial or ethnic group or many other types of groups. Um, That's the unequal outcomes of this group in comparison to other groups. So I'm gonna use those two words within this little section a lot, and I just wanted to break those down uh, because they do mean two very different things. And so when we look at the data set for early childhood, we know that students, um, black students, are about 18% of the total preschool enrollment. Um, and I will preface, this is the data that we have from publicly funded schools. We don't have as much data for privately funded schools, um, but we do have publicly funded. So that's going to be your head starts or state preschools, though they'll be more publicly funded. So, we know that they're about 18% of the total preschool enrollment of that population. Black students are suspended from school at about 43% of the total population and expelled from school at 37% of the total population. And that gives us a disparity, that gives us a, that gives us that disproportionality right, if their total preschool population is about 18% of the total population of students enrolled in publicly funded schools, it's disproportionate that 43% of them are suspended from school more than once, and that 37% of them are expelled from school. When we look at in comparison to their white peers, we find, for comparison, white students are 43% of the total population and accounted for 37% of uh, suspensions. So in a perfect world, we don't wanna see any children being suspended and expelled from schools, right? We wanna make sure that our teachers have the resources, that they have the staffing, that they have the support needed to, to effectively work with students and handle challenging behaviors, and handle the students, and and be able to incorporate them in the school environment. And I'll talk about those strategies a little bit later, but in a perfect world, we don't want to see students being expelled from schools, especially when we're talking about preschool students. And to remind you, preschoolers are about two and a half years old. They're two, two and a half years old is kind of when preschool generally will start. And these are students who, they're two and a half to five years old, and you have little black students being suspended more than once or being expelled from school at this early of an age. We see a similar pattern in K-12 education. I think we have a little bit more data on that, so we do see the same pattern working with that as well. We see a similar pattern with students with disabilities. So the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or IDEA um, is the one that provides services to students with special needs, we know that 27% of students of preschool kind of enrollment receive services under the IDEA Act. But unfortunately, 59% of students who are a part of that population were being expelled, which again, that's another giant dis- disproportionality of what's happening with these students. And if we listen to our confirmation bias, right, our confirmation bias says that if I can you know, I can see this pattern, therefore, that's what it is. I believe this thing. And so I believe that the data I'm seeing is pointing to all these different things, right? If our if our ideology says that Black students are more likely to be violent, are more likely to commit crimes, are less deserving, if that is our idea of these Black students, or if our idea about students with disabilities is that they are not as capable, they are not as intelligent, um, they are not as able, ready, and willing to learn, if these are the ideologies that we have and we see this data, it's gonna confirm to us that, yes, everything that I've believed is indeed accurate and this is why this is is happening. Uh, But that's, again, why it's really important that when we take a social justice framework, we look at patterns and we look at systems in place, right? Because when we actually look at the data and we look at the data even further, we're seeing that Black students and students with disabilities are not committing any more challenging behaviors. They're not engaging in, you know, maladaptive behavior more often. They're actually doing it at the same rate as their white peers. It all goes into how they are punished. And then when we look at that, that causes us to ask a few more questions about why is this actually happening and what's happening to these students and why are they being disproportionately subjected to these punishments? When we go a switch back to the the justice system the criminal justice system we see that same similar disproportionality that is happening that we're seeing um black kids we see that african-american students are being disproportionately subjected to harsher punishment than their white peers even if we controlled for factors such as prior offenses and seriousness of the crime in terms of juvenile justice we see that african americans are more likely to be tried in adult criminal court than their white peers and that goes back to you know the the federal juvenile delinquency act right And so as i said there are only there are a couple of offenses that juvenile court just does not have the jurisdiction to hear um in addition to that some juvenile courts, you know, it it goes by a state-by-state basis. Some states can make decisions for their juvenile courts. Some states can implement a maximum age. So under the act, it goes until, you know, before your 18th birthday, but some states can um, implement even a younger age. So for um, the maximum age is 17 in at least 47 states uh, for juvenile court jurisdiction. Um, And in Currently in Georgia, Texas, and Wisconsin, the maximum age is set to 16. So if you're 17 in those states and you have committed a kind of juvenile delinquent act or offense, um, you can then, you will then be tried in adult criminal court and you've kind of bypassed juvenile court at that, at that time. Most cases concerning juveniles and juvenile delinquency are, need to be held within a a juvenile court first before they can be transferred to adult criminal court um, so if if it's outside of their jurisdiction then it has to go to the adult criminal court uh, kind of regardless and so that is called the judicially controlled transfers that is usually the most common fun common one that we find there's also something called the prosecutorial discretion transfer Uh, this happens in a lot fewer states it's 12 states including the district of columbia but it essentially gives the prosecutor the unilateral ability to bypass um, juvenile courts and do direct file to adult criminal court and in most cases um, the youth does not have the ability to transfer it back from the adult criminal court to the juvenile courts and again the juvenile courts tend to take in The fact that they are a juvenile and tend to um, make decisions that are a little bit more harsh or a little bit less harsh and um, consider in the kind of age of the juvenile and the seriousness of the crime, whereas adult criminal court does not need to do that. Um, So if a juvenile is transferred from juvenile court to adult court, it is going to be a much harsher sentence. And in some cases, the juvenile can even be held in an adult court or prison or adult adult prison, uh, which then also poses a lot more difficulties and challenges, and it's very dangerous for a juvenile to be held in an adult prison, essentially. Um, So when these things happen, it really puts that youth at even higher risk than they were at before. And so after that tough on crime era that we had in the 80s and 90s, we saw that juveniles were being transferred to adult criminal court more often than they had been. Uh, even now the United States is a bit more of an outlier when it comes to our, our criminal justice system in general. it is a much an outlier compared to the rest of the con- or the rest of the, the world. and particularly with juvenile justice. So you know a disheartening thing, but we but the Supreme Court did say that it was unconstitutional to um, subject a juvenile to the death penalty. Um, so we did do that in 2005. however, states can still sentence juveniles to um prison without the possibility of parole um which when we go back to an adolescent and we go back to that juvenile and we look at all of the different factors that can contribute to you know why a person makes a decision that they do or why they um engage in behaviors that they do and especially for young people a lot of their factors that are of their lives are outside of their control. They don't control their socioeconomic status. They don't control their parents' choices. They don't control where they live. They don't control the environment in which they grow up in. And so sometimes these things contribute to their behavior. So that's a whole kind of socioeconomic thing that we can look into as well. And so when we talk about the disparity of exclusionary discipline practices with students even going back to preschool right if we talk about the disparity that that leads for for students black and brown students with disabilities lgbtq students hispanic students when we talk about how this exclusionary discipline practice is disproportionately impacting these groups in addition to it it is causing this disparity in which now we are seeing more and more students being exposed to a prison and being exposed to the criminal justice system than they really should be. When we look at the school-to-prison pipeline and how it impacts the how it impacts a student's pathway through education, their entire educational journey, we also include early childhood in that, and we have the data that is showing that we're engaging in these exclusionary discipline practices, right? And those stem from a lot of things, but we can really see that the height of where this was starting to stem from was those zero tolerance policies and no child left behind, where our intentions and our goals for education was shifted and skewed a bit from what it really should be, right? We should be looking at ensuring that students are getting a quality of care that they deserve. We should be looking at Not only what students are learning, but how students are learning them and how we can best modulate what we're doing to fit best for them, to fit best for every student, really. So, individualizing our curriculum to make sure that students are getting exactly what they need when they need it. So, when we're engaging in exclusionary discipline practices, we're excluding that student from the school environment. We are interrupting their social emotional development. We're interrupting their you know cognitive development. all these different areas of their development we are interrupting by excluding them from that school environment and there's a number of different systems at play here, and you know we're looking at at teachers who also are under a tremendous amount of stress and have so many different things on their plate that they need to meet. They need to meet standards. They need to, you know, submit their DRDPs. There's just so many things that teachers need to do. So I can see why it happens the way it does. And then we also have bias that kind of seeps in there as well. So if we are not being intentional and we're not being aware of what our biases are, we are humans. We are going to be biased. Biases are a natural part of our human development and and how we, we've gotten to this place that we are because we've developed certain biases. So I'm not here to say that you're a bad person because you have biases. That I would never say that I have biases and I don't think I'm a bad person. It's when we're not aware of them and when we're not doing our best to confront our biases, that's when it starts to it starts to, start to cause problems, right? It's not the fact that we are biased problems. problem. It's what we do because of those biases. Again, going back to systems oppression, ideologies, right? And what students are being impacted the most by that? And that's our black and brown students. That's our students with disabilities. um, That's our students, our LGBTQ students are more likely to be subjected to exclusionary discipline practices than their peers. And again, that's even controlling for a bunch of different factors, including, you know, but these students are more likely to be these students are more likely to be punished for subjective offenses, like talking back or, um, you know, loudness. There's, or they're kind of being attacked for just these little normal things that students do. And so not just looking at it as, oh, well, they're doing this behavior, so therefore they need to be punished. It's what is the behavior and how is that activating me as a teacher? And where is that activation coming from? And why am I targeting certain students for this behavior? And I might not be targeting other students for this behavior, right? And so that's where our biases start to come into place. And I am a biased person. I know that when I was a teacher and wasn't working on my biases, I definitely had a bias towards my my male students. Um, I kind of held my female students to this higher standard than I did with my male students. And You know, recognizing that and looking back, that goes back to my childhood, that goes back to my upbringing, that goes back to my culture. And so really just being aware of how are my biases impacting my ability to teach and provide high quality care and instruction to my students, right? And see them all as learners. Um, It's really important that I as a teacher and I as the adult in the room and I'm doing that work, because if I'm not doing that work, I'm causing harm, point blank, right? Right? And so these are all different aspects that contribute to the school to prison pipeline. So that looks at exclusionary discipline practices. That's looking at our biases as educators. That's looking at the education system at large, right? Is it set up for all students to succeed? Absolutely not. Right. It's, is it set up for all students to have the resources that they need? It's supposed to be, but that's not always what's actually happening. And, We're looking at the justice system as well. So what factors are contributing to our students going from their school environment, where they should be, where they should be learning, where they should be connecting with their peers, where they should be connecting with supportive adults, where they should be making important and impactful connections with their peers. Why are they being moved from this environment to the justice system? And why are they being moved from that environment to the prison system where, They're not going to get the care that they need. They're not going to get any sort of support systems that they need. And in fact, this very act of being sentenced to a prison, even the juvenile courts, it leads to this long-term negative outcomes for um, young people that will follow them for the rest of their lives. So what can we do? What steps can we make to make a pathway towards more fair and equitable society that does not include the school to prison pipeline. What do we do? How do we get there? There's a number of different ways that we can get there. Um, One way is by looking at our teacher preparation programs, making sure that our student student teachers and our teachers are learning about culturally responsive, relevant and sustaining pedagogy, that we're understanding the importance of culture in the classroom. uh, And most importantly, that we're also looking at our own biases and that We are being lifelong learners and working on our biases as teachers and knowing that each student that comes into our classroom is capable of learning. It has a desire to learn and that we have these positive attributes to these students because they deserve that. They've been through enough already. They deserve that. We look at things like restorative justice practices. There are a number of schools that have integrated restorative justice practices that have been very beneficial for students. So right now we're kind of operating on a model of um, kind of deterrence and, you know, kind of rational choices are all kind of justice terms, but we're operating on this idea that right now we have a system that operates on punishment forward, right? So there was a harm that was done. Who's responsible? How do we fix it? and using that punishment for the person who did the harm. That is our current system that we are operating on. We look at that in our justice system. We see that in our education system. Um, that's the one that we're currently working with, but it's obviously not working, right? We're still seeing crime, is it's decreased overall in the past couple of years, but we still see that these things happen and we still see things like recidivism. So recidivism is um, you know, when a crime has been committed, And a person goes to prison or is, um, you know, goes through a punishment and then is kind of released back into the society and then commits a crime again. So that's recidivism. Right. We see that those tend to also still be really high. So that tells us that what we're doing isn't working. You know, crimes are still happening. Hurt is still happening. Injustice is still happening. And our current model just is not fixing that problem. It is putting a Band-Aid on a problem when we're not looking at the deeper issues that are happening. And although restorative justice does not fully fix the issue, it does not fully fix anything, it is a little bit better than a Band-Aid, but it is something that we could start implementing in schools right now. And restorative justice is really gonna look at community, it's gonna look at relationships, and it's gonna look at how do we repair harm after harm happens, right? And how do we prevent that as a community? And it really restores right uh, relationships. And that's really important. We know that especially for adolescents, that peers and their relationships are so integral to how they learn. You see that in early childhood as well. Their peers and those relationships are so important, right? You look at that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And relationships are a pretty big core part of that. And so restorative justice seeks to put the pieces back together by reducing harm and by coming back together as a community when harm happens. And so that's one way that we can start to look at how do we continue to have students stay in the classroom? How do we you know, prevent these exclusionary discipline practices right, for students? Other options for alternatives to discipline or punishment practices could be things like community counseling, peer mediation, uh, mentorship, really working, again, going back to those ideas of restorative justice, is working on that community and working on building those relationships is gonna be really important and really integral. And it's gonna shift us away from that model that is just punishment focused of you did a crime, here's your punishment, and we move on. It's looking at, okay, well, why, why are these things happening? How do we get to a place where we can form community, where we can form relationships, where we can actually grow together? We also know that community is another big important part of that. So it just even the school community is important, right? The entire the entire school community should be involved in this process. We also know that the community outside of school is super important. So we know that when youth and adolescents have positive associations outside in their community, when they have things to do, essentially, uh, within their community, it fosters a sense of ownership of their community, which is really important, and also it connects them with other supportive adults who can help with the mentorship component of that, who can help support them with a bunch of other different things that they're going through, right? As adolescents, there's a lot going on within adolescence in terms of your brain developing, hormones developing, um, you know, your peer-to-peer relationships developing, a whole lot of things are developing during that stage of adolescence. So having a supportive adult who is someone that they know that they can go to, um, that could be a parent, that could be a teacher, that could be, um, you know, someone at their church. There's a variety of different ways that students can get that very important adult mentorship component of that, but investing in communities is going to be so important for, for students to see that, right? When they're in an environment that it doesn't reflect them, when they're in an environment that doesn't respect them even, they know that, they can feel that and they're going to act accordingly right so what can we do to help support youth and adolescents through their development and give them more opportunities to make good choices we can look at equity right especially when we're talking about educational equity but you know we know that students primarily get funding either through the government depending on on you know their their specific title that they have you've have title 1 schools and title 2 schools they get funding specifically either from the government or they also get funding based on the community around them. So if you're in a more affluent community, your schools are going to be funded more, which means you're going to have more resources. You're going to be able to have better paid teachers. You're going to have more teachers. You're going to have better equipment around you. And you're just going to have better opportunities and access to opportunities. It's inequitable in the fact that if you're growing up in an area that is not affluent, um, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of houses in the area. So you're not getting those, you're not getting that additional funding from that. It's, it's inequitable in a number of ways, but looking at the access that you're, you're not getting, the opportunities that you're still not getting, that access to social capital, right? So you could have, you know, in a more affluent community, you can have teachers that went to really, you know, affluent colleges and universities and have connections there, right? And can connect you with that. Or you can have, Um, people in your community who also know people who can connect you with that higher someone, you know, if you want to get the NBA and you have someone in your community who knows someone who works for the NBA, that's a really great resource and a really great connection that you can have. But if you don't even have access to that connection, right? So we're looking at initiatives that work towards educational equity, um, that look towards ensuring that schools are getting funding that, that they need and deserve, and that students are getting access to opportunities. It's looking at things like, you know, you take, for example, the SATs, right? That's a big thing that a lot of colleges look for. Not so much anymore, there's been a bit of of a shift. Um, Again, educational equity advocacy has helped that shift to happen, but previously your SAT scores, so you would take this test generally in high school and the score that you would get on that, you would be able to share it with potential colleges that you wanna go to and the higher your score is, you know, the better your opportunities is to get in. And it tests on a number of things, you know, reasoning, math, comprehension, um, general things that you learn within school, but it's very, it's very targeted. And it's very, it's, it's a little bit different than the, the things that you actually learn in school. That's, that's taught towards the test and that's not the same test. And so students in more affluent communities had more access to getting tutors had more access to resources or like getting the books to help them kind of study for the test essentially but if you're not in an affluent community and you don't have after school tutoring for the SATs and you don't have access to you know a personal tutor to help you with that and you don't have access to buy all of these big huge massive books that will help you to learn those things you're just kind of going off what you know and it kind of creates more inequities in that because you don't have that same access to those things you're not able to obtain a higher test score we do have things with the internet now so it's amazing that we can look into those things a little bit more than we kind of used to have access but it's still it, it it creates more challenges where there don't need to be challenges we can also look at policies specific to um you know your area we can look at those policies and what is actually you know, being enacted or what is being proposed and who is proposing it, right? So are we even talking about early childhood? Um, Specifically, that's my background and that's what I talk about the most, but for early childhood policy, what's going on there? Like, are, are we really being equitable in the policies that are being proposed and who's behind these policies being proposed? So, you know, things like going to these school board meetings are really great ways to get an idea of the climate in which schools are operating in, and also voting in those smaller elections. You're going to see things pop up on these small elections that are really important and really impact access and, and educational equity. So these are even small things that just, you know, the average person can even just do is look at what's actually happening in our communities. And I would love to start adding a section to the podcast where I can talk about educational equity and i could talk about policy and what policies are happening and and what do they mean and really breaking it down because i know sometimes the policy like the actual you know verbiage of the policy it can be kind of hard to read because it's not really made to be read by the average person um so if that's something you're interested in please let me know i'm interested in it so i might just do it anyways and (laughs) we can look at other ways of advocacy and policy reform and other things that we can look at are really youth empowerment initiatives so as we said it in multiple episodes before and i'll I'll always say this is with advocacy it's important that we're talking to the communities that are most impacted by the injustice or the inequity or the oppression and in this case it's going to be those students and there's plenty of, you know, youth advocacy groups out there. There are nonprofits that work directly with youth. And it's important that we're actually sitting down and listening to them. Uh, I know San Diego just did a really great one I think a couple of months ago. It was a panel that they did with young people within the school district and just asked them questions and they were able to talk about what was going on in their community. They were able to talk about their concerns. They were able to talk about their ideas. And so really actually listening to what the young people have to say. I think that's a big component of youth-adult partnerships, right? Is, you know, making sure that you have a partnership between the youth and the adults. The youth are the ones who are going through the thing usually and have a lot of insight into what it feels like to be a student in schools right now. I haven't been in a high school, I haven't mean, been a student in a high school and many years now so my experience as a high school student is going to be different than high schoolers who are going through school right now and so i want to know what their experience is like i want to know what the experience is like in middle school even you can talk to students who are going who are you know going through elementary school and we can observe students who are in early childhood and really gaining a lot of insight into what are they feeling what are their thoughts about you know being in school what are their thoughts about What are their thoughts about their teachers? What are their thoughts about this? what they're going through in general? It's going to be really, really important. So then we can actually empower youth, right? So with our knowledge of adults and our knowledge of just the general bureaucracy of going through things in the government, like we have can utilize our knowledge and utilize their knowledge and creativity to create partnerships that actually get things done, right? But it would be, I would be remiss if I wasn't looking At youth for what they're feeling and what they're going through and what they want to happen in the future of their educational system, right? And they have a lot of really great ideas and we should be listening to that. We also know that parent involvement is also something that's going to be so, 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 so important, right? So looking at communities and looking at community level and community-based support. So how can we provide a level of support to Parents, either that's parenting classes, whether that's getting them resources, um, providing them with opportunities to connect with other parents in the community, right? And so, really looking at a way that we can support parents and get them involved within their education system and get them involved within their students' learning, right? Those are all going to be really important aspects for, again, helping students and making and helping, you know, adolescents to make good choices. Of course we know with their brain development that frontal lobe isn't fully developed so sometimes they need a little bit of help to continue to make good choices and so involving every aspect and every level of that and that's going from your home environment to the parents to the siblings that's going into the wider community that's going into the school system that's going into the juvenile justice system we need all of these things to work together to ensure that we are providing you know young people with the best opportunities to be successful and with that, I'll leave that there for now. I've talked for a long time and I can continue to talk for a very long time on this topic. I There's so many more things that I just, I feel like I want to say and I don't want to talk at your off for like five hours because I will. So thank you so much for listening today to Conscious Pathways. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or follow us on wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to give us a like or a review. It really helps the podcast to grow and share it with anyone. And I'll be back next week for the next couple of weeks right now. uh, If you're listening to it at the time it's coming out, it is the end of November. So I'll have a couple more episodes coming out for December. And then around that um, Christmas time, I will I'll put a pause on episodes and then we'll be back in January. So we have a couple more interviews um, coming up this week that I'm really excited to share. And then we will take a break probably right around Christmas time and then come back and I will share that on social media as well. And until next time, I'll see you then. Bye.